it's funny because I think about what would have happened if I hadn't been diagnosed and was just pregnant. And I actually think that from a health perspective, having the cancer was a blessing because all of a sudden I'd been thrown into this little bubble of love where everyone was just making sure that I was okay. So I didn't have to worry about all of the other kind of bullshit that we normally have to worry about in our day-to-day lives. So I could focus on feeding my body, going for long walks, nourishing, you know, my body and connecting with my baby, which I think that if I if I hadn't gotten sick, I would be running around from work, stressing myself out, not concentrating on my diet and health. gives you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons into lemonade. Because let's be real, we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping the Michello on the other side. Let's get juicing. At the age of 30, Al Hallowell was at the top of her game. The fashion editor for the Daily Telegraph, regular stints on Channel 9 as the entertainment reporter, and even a weekly show on the Nova radio network. When seemingly out of nowhere, she was diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukemia, turning her world upside down. Then deep in the midst of coming to terms with the shock of her diagnosis, 48 hours later, Elle found out she was pregnant. She was faced with the impossible decision, terminate and begin life-saving treatment or proceed with the pregnancy both Elle and her husband really wanted. Elle shares what it was like to experience the duality of life and death, receiving treatment in the cancer ward and the maternity ward at the same time, her successful career, her beautiful baby boy tour, the lessons she's learnt along the way, and how she wants to use her story to inspire others. Here's Elle. Elle, thank you so very much for being here. I'm so excited to chat with you and thank you for bearing with these mic issues. Thank you so much for having me. And look, we've managed to figure it out we're doing pretty well I think so one just so you know at home one microphone is completely carked it and so we're just sharing so if you just hear a little bit of a delay as we go back and forth please don't judge and we're doing what we can (laughs) that's right that's the nature of the media isn't it exactly it's very very glamorous now Elle first off I'd love for you to give us an insight I like to start all interviews with getting an insight into what life was like when you were growing up what what was your childhood like was really nice I spent a lot of my childhood barefoot naked in a pool going on bushwalks I was a bit of a tomboy loved you know going along the banks of my like parents property looking for mud crabs chasing ducks like yeah I, I loved to get down and dirty when I was little and yeah it was a really lovely childhood actually growing up on Sydney's northern beaches I had two older sisters. I have two older sisters who are nine and ten years older than me. So I guess in a sense I was a bit of an only child, but never lonely. I enjoyed my own company. So, look, I have to say it was a it was a pretty beautiful childhood. Yeah, wow, that's a big age gap. 
very big i was such an accident (laughs) such an accident yeah it was actually really fortunate that i was born in fact because my mum was told to terminate me because she'd been having some severe issues gynecological issues and she was on holiday when she found out she was pregnant and she'd driven two hours to the hospital to accompany one of her friends who had I think a stomach issue or something and the doctors when they were there she, she wasn't feeling well and they said well let's just check you out and they came back and said congratulations you're pregnant but unfortunately because you've got so many issues because she'd only recently before that had a hemorrhage oh because of a bad IUD and they said so unfortunately this won't be a viable pregnancy so we would suggest that you stay overnight and have the termination before you go back to the campground that they were staying at and my dad was two hours away and this was before mobile phones so she's like oh my god what do I do and she ended up saying look no I'm gonna hold on and they said well you could possibly bleed to death on oh the way home god. so we're gonna get you to sign this waiver before we let you go from the hospital anyway went back home and her GP said look I think she's going to be okay. I think the baby should be fine. And nine months later, there I was. So, yeah, it was a real miracle that that I came into the world. And completely healthy and normal birth and... Yeah, pretty much. Pretty standard delivery. So, you know, it's definitely worth getting second opinions. Yeah, well, we'll get to that, absolutely. (laughs) And you then pursued a career in journalism. What made you want to do that? Did you always love writing at school? Funnily enough, I was not always very great at English in terms of essay writing. I sucked at essay writing. I'd hand in one sheet of paper and the teachers would look at me and go, well, where are the other 10 pages? And I'm like, well, I I can get to the point in one page. Why do I need to write nine other pages of waffle? That is such a journalism thing. Isn't it? And so I kept getting marked down and I was like, oh, you know what? I don't know if this, you know, journalism thing is going to be a good idea. And my dad actually was the person who kind of put the, planted the seed in my head. He said, look, journalism when I was growing up all of the newspapers were always the center of movies because that's where all the action happened he said it'll be a great you know idea you love reading you love writing so why don't you think about that and I kind of was just like yeah sure sounds good and and that was kind of the start of it and I remember going to to college and getting these amazing marks for my for my writing because it was all so succinct yeah. and so I figured that while I couldn't write an essay and maybe I wasn't, you know, going to be, you know, a literary genius, I could definitely write a good news story. So that's kind of where, where it all happened. Yeah, well, and did you always, did you begin in fashion journalism or did you kind of veer out into that? No, so I actually got my writing career as a coffee runner <laughs> at the Daily Telly. <laughs> I was an editorial assistant and basically my job for the first, you know, six months of my career was writing Pet of the Week. And, <laughs> We've you know, all got stories like that. Yep, getting, getting cappuccinos for the editor every every morning. And did you think it was a huge deal doing the Pet of the Week? Would you get your parents to read it? Every single <laughs> yes. week. Like it was the highlight. I was like, oh, my God. And the, the great thing is I love animals. And so, you know what? I would have still been writing Pet of the Week if I'd had the time because I loved it so much. And then funnily enough, you know, I I always really had an interest in fashion and I'm very much of the belief that when you're young, always dress for the job that you want. Mm -hmm. And so I would always make sure that I I looked the part when I went in and every time I I ended up pitching a story when I became a cadet, it would generally be fashion related because I was interested in it. And then one day... 
I was called into the deputy editor's office well, and like, she said, oh. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You don't, you don't get called into the deputy editor's office just for no reason. No. So yeah, shaking in my boots a little bit. And she said, look, our fashion editor has is leaving the telly and we've got no one to do the job. So can you just fill in? Wow. And I think in her mind, actually, I spoke to her many years later about this and she was really shocked that, you know, such a a meeting that she'd completely forgotten about a few weeks later had made such an impact on my life. And so I was determined, even though I was this cadet who'd just been given like one of the most plum jobs in, in newspaper writing, you know, for a brief time, I was like, well, maybe this is my chance and I'm not going to let them kind of think about getting someone else. So I'm no. just going to, you know, take this role and run with it. And, and funnily enough, that was kind of the beginning of, yeah, my, my fashion writing career. And I, I continued that for many years and then kind of weaved in and out of writing entertainment as well. And yeah, there you go. That's the end of the story in a way in terms of my, my writing career. But then also at the same time, you're also co-hosting a show on Nova and reporting for the Nine Network entertainment reporting as well. If that's not a triple threat, I don't know what is. I literally don't know anybody in the industry that does print radio and television, firstly. What was that like when you were juggling all these different balls? It was exciting but exhausting. I mean, you can't keep that level of work up for very long and it wasn't long before I completely burnt out. I mean, I was doing a nine to five, well, not really. It was like, a, you know, 15-hour days at the telly in between then managing to do interviews for the Nova and then on Sundays doing, you know, a morning segment on the Weekend Today show as well and having to do stories in between that for that. Oh, my God. And I, you know, considering that I have, well, I did have for most of my 20s a severe chronic anxiety problem, it just all culminated in complete burnout, you yeah. know, within about a year. Wow. And it was it was tough. I mean, I, I kind of look back and I, I think, wow, you know, well done me for, for managing to keep up that kind of level of, of work. But it, it's not sustainable and I would not suggest anybody do that no matter how kind of ambitious they are in their career because you can kind of burn out pretty quickly. What did that burnout look like for you? Panic attacks, you know, breathe. I thought I actually had emphysema because I couldn't breathe. Wow. I was having these problems with, yeah, with like getting air into my body and that would cause panic attacks because I thought I was dying and, you know, I, I didn't sleep very well. My diet went out the window. I was living on coffee and you know, hot chips. Oh it was, God. it was pretty bad actually. And I think from a yeah mental health point of view, that meant I couldn't see a lot of my my friends and family and go to all of those special occasions like weddings and birthdays. And it was always the default. Oh, Elle's probably working. Mm. So that's a shame. You know, I feel a little bit of regret that I, you know, I didn't put my health and my my friends and family a little bit higher on my priority mm. list. But, you know, when I, when I turned 30, I kind of was almost forced to, yeah. to flip that on its head and I'm eternally grateful for that. Yeah, it's almost as, as we were about to get to, the universe really had really wanted you to flip those values and those priorities because I think it was 2016, you correct me if I'm wrong, you had a bout of gastro and you went to the doctor, as we all do. Yes, that's right. So, yeah, I, I'd had a stomach bug and I, so I went to the doctor to get a doctor's certificate when I finally made it out of that bathroom. Oh, God. <laughs> yes. And while I was there, look, me and my husband, we'd been together since I was 19. And we got married in 2012. And 
I kind of gotten to the point where I was like, okay, I'm 30 years old, just turned 30. Now it's time to start this, this new chapter of our lives and, and maybe think about having, you know, starting a family. So when I was at the doctor, I said to him, look, can I get a blood test? Because I want to make sure that my folate and my vitamin D is okay. It Only in the last couple of months before that, when I'd really kind of reached the peak of my burnout, I, I decided that I really needed to start looking after my health a bit more. And so that's why I was kind of very aware of making sure that my body was in you know in good health before we thought about starting a family so I got these tests done and then a couple of weeks later the test came back with high platelets so I had no idea what a platelet was at the time I was like is that is there a problem and he said look probably not but we'll get you retested so I got another another test and he said look it could just be the the virus that you've had the stomach bug that's caused your platelets to elevate but then the next test came back and they were higher. So he said, look, probably nothing to worry about, but we'll get you checked out by a hematologist. And so there was about a, a five gap. It was, yeah, yeah, because it was just the unknown and, you know, you you start to Google things yeah. and then you go, oh, my God, could it be this, could it be that? Yeah, so it was a, a bit of a wait, but I have to say I was really, really busy at the time, so I didn't really have too much time to think about it too much. But I do remember at one point actually – going up to my chief of staff and having a little cry. I think it was one of those days when, you know, just work was just overwhelming. I was like, look, I've had these weird tests and I don't know what's going on and just a bit emotional at the, at the moment. And then, yeah, so five weeks later I, I get this appointment, my, I, I get the test done and they tell me to come back in three weeks to get these results. And then the next day, which is the Thursday, literally the minute that I walked into work, it was just after 9 a.m. I get a phone call from them and I'm thinking, that's weird. Yeah. I thought maybe I'd left something at the, at the hematology department, like my glasses or something. And the lady at the reception, she called me and she said, oh, look, Miss Halliwell, we've actually got your results back a little earlier than expected. So we'd like you to come in on Monday. We've opened an appointment for you first thing Monday morning. And can you please come with a loved one? We'll see you then. Bye. Oh, my God. And I, what do you, what do, you do? Like you don't go to the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital with a loved one or the, you know, Chris O'Brien Lifehouse. And how old were you? 30. Oh, I can't even imagine. I know. And so all of these things were running through my mind and I was in the middle of work, like I was at work and I just had this complete breakdown in the office and called my husband on the way home because I was basically put in a taxi because I was just inconsolable. And he said, look, I'm going to find out what's going on because we're not waiting four days to find out what's wrong with you. That is ridiculous. So later that night, our GP came over and he's actually a good friend of ours. And he sat us down on the, on the couch in our house and he said, Elle, it's not good. He said, it's leukaemia. And it was just such a blindside. I mean, here I am at the top of my career, you know, looking forward to starting a family and being told that, like, you've got this illness that, you know, the survival rates for a lot of leukaemias are very, very slim. And so, yeah, it was, it was just absolutely shocking and I just remember me and my husband just bawling our eyes out together on the couch for what felt like forever. And then the next two days, you know, we, we had to tell our friends, friends and family about what was happening. And then when the Saturday rolled around, I was kind of lying on the couch and contemplating my own mortality. And all of a sudden I got this kind of feeling that I was like, oh, my God, I need to take this test and I don't know why I was why this thought came into my head, but a couple of weeks before I'd bought a two pack of pregnancy tests and 
the first test I took was negative. So I just thought, you just leave it. That's fine. Because we weren't trying at this point. But, you know, I'd gone off the pill and accidents happened. So I was planning to go out with some friends a couple of weeks before and have a few drinks. And so that's why I took it, just to kind of rule out any anything, you know. And then, yeah, so I took the other test on the Saturday and it came back positive. So I was pregnant. So, yeah, finding out that you're pregnant and have cancer within 48 hours is pretty intense. I don't even know what to ask next <laughs> after hearing that. I've heard you say this story, but hearing you sitting right in front of me say it is, is incredible. They are two absolutely monumental life-changing events to happen to anyone yeah. and they happen within 48 hours. It probably feels like a silly question for me to ask, but what is going through your mind? Yeah, it's funny because being a journalist, I'm sure you you can agree that you just want to know everything about everything. Mm. Like you just want to investigate. And it's funny because when I found out about the cancer, I didn't want to know, didn't want to look into it. Mm. And then when the pregnancy was also revealed, I guess, I didn't want to know any, like I was even more determined not to know. I just wanted to put my blinkers on and pretend like it wasn't happening. Like I kind of closed up and I was in shock I was in absolute shock I didn't know I didn't know what to think you know and my mind would fluctuate between things of like oh my god what I have to do to sort my funeral out to you know imagining this baby and then yeah it was a mind fuck apologies for the swearing absolutely not but it was actually my husband who really took the reins and decided that he was going to do all the research and find out what was going on with you know you know, and whether this cancer meant that I would def- definitely have to terminate the pregnancy. And and this is, at this point, I hadn't even gone to the RPA for the official diagnosis. That was happening on the Monday. So when the Monday rolled around, our haematologist was planning to tell me that I had cancer. And I'm like, dude, I'm pregnant too. Like so much has happened between then. Yeah, <laughs> get with it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> News alert. Yeah, so he was a little bit taken aback. What did he say? Shit. Yeah. Or fuck. One of the, like, I think it was shit. But, yeah, he was a little bit surprised and his kind of haematology expertise was was slightly different to CML, which is the cancer that I have. And so he'd never dealt with anything even similar to this. Like he had no idea, you know, what the best way forward was. And so he was liaising with a man down in South Australia called Tim Hughes about, you know, what what we could possibly do. He was like pretty much emailing him while we were in the clinic. And so basically what the end result was, the choice that we were, were given was that I could either terminate the pregnancy as soon as possible. This is what he recommended terminate the pregnancy, go on fertility treatment and then start this new medication that had basically changed the game for people with my illness. So CML, chronic myeloid leukemia, up until about the early 2000s was really, really bad prognosis of about three to five year survival rate. Oh, my God. Yeah, so what would happen was it would, the first phase would would last a few years where you, you might not even have many symptoms and then you would get to an accelerated phase and then a blast crisis phase, which would when when the cancer turned acute and then, you know, it was very, very bad. And so this new drug that had come on the market had basically just changed the life expectancy to, you know, decades. And one of the biggest things, though, was making sure you 
you get on the medication as soon as possible. So at this point, we didn't know how far along my cancer had progressed. And so no one knew what this pregnancy would do to the cancer, whether it would speed it up, whether it would slow it down. So there were all of these unknowns. And so, yeah, he said, that's option one, which I would strongly recommend. Or you keep the baby and we wait and see and then hope that you can get to the point where you can have the baby and then start this medication and, you know, have the cancer be manageable and and keep you alive with the drugs. So, yeah, it's a big decision. How does someone choose between their own life and their health and their future or that of they've just found out their unborn child? How do you make that kind of decision? Do you consult with people? Do you consult with a psychologist? I'm not, I'm not sure how you get to that. Yeah, well, funnily enough, my husband was the one who gave us a little bit of hope that we might be able to to get through it and I guess deep in my mind I didn't really think that a baby would be able to survive in a body with cancer past the 12-week mark so in my mind I kind of thought you know when 12 weeks comes about then we can kind of figure out what to do I wanted to delay it as, as much as possible but my husband was like look There's this hospital over in the UK and they've seen this before and they've had, you know, a success rate and, you know, managed to kind of keep the keep the person with CML, you know, healthy enough to have the baby. And I was like, oh, my gosh, really? So that kind of planted a little seed of hope. But, you know, having a specialist say that I don't think you should do that. I'm someone who respects authority, maybe a little bit too much because I'm generally like, oh, if the doctor says no, then, you know. But Nick's like, no, let's let's think about this more. Let's go get a second opinion. So we went down to South Australia and met with Timothy Hughes, who had been consulting with our haematologist. And after a long discussion, he he agreed with our haematologist that it would be risky. But he also at the end said, you know, gave us enough confidence to say, well, if this is the what we choose, then maybe we can get through it. So that was kind of the... Yeah, the decision that we made, that's how we kind of came to that decision. And, you know, the 12-week mark came and went. And I guess every week that, you know, I, I continued to to keep the pregnancy was just, you know, an extra week of, of hope. And, and then, yeah, I think by the time we got to 26 weeks, I think, I was like, oh, my God, this is... Happening. And I, I was still feeling okay, which was amazing, you know. And every day I'd wake up and go... Okay, I can get out of bed. Yeah, I can, you know, go on a walk. And that was just a great day. So I just took it step by step. And what were your options in terms of the treatment you were allowed to take during pregnancy? Or were you not allowed to take anything? Yeah, so I was put on a blood thinner to get my platelets down. And then there wasn't really anything that I could take up until my last trimester, which was a an injection in my stomach called interferon which basically is it doesn't cross the placenta barrier and it basically stimulates your own immune system I believe interferon is something that we actually have in our body in certain amounts but it used to be the only treatment available for CML patients and they use it for you know AIDS patients and people with with other kind of yeah blood diseases and so I had to inject myself with that in my third trimester and that was you know I guess psychologically injecting a needle into your pregnant belly it feels so wrong wrong yeah exactly and that was really stressful 
but I managed to tolerate that drug really well and a lot of people don't. So that was amazing. And it felt like a sign you were doing the right thing, I guess. Absolutely. And so, yeah, it was, you know, it was funny though. I went to so many appointments and specialists that year that I would literally rock up to the RPA and go into the, the pregnancy ward or what do they call it, the maternity ward and they go, oh, no, not today. You're actually on the other side of the road at the cancer clinic. So I, you know, I, yeah, it was just so many, so many tests, so much blood taken, so many, you know, things like that. But the RPA was amazing. Like they were so onto it. Going between those two units, what is the, can you talk us through the contrast between what you were seeing? Yeah, it was some of the looks that you got when you went to the cancer ward heavily pregnant were, were pretty heartbreaking, actually. You know, you, yeah, you could see these kind of looks of pity. And I guess a lot of people were thinking, oh, my God, is it her husband or is it her that, you know, has the cancer? Yeah, so it was pretty psychologically confusing. Mm. Yeah. Maternity wards are so happy and joyful as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, it was like a tale of, of two illnesses, I guess. But, yeah, it was, it was very – it's funny because uh, – I think I blocked a lot of it out because the emotions were so strong that, uh, you know, I think from a self-preservation point of view, I kind of just had to double down. And it's funny because a lot of people will tell me things that happened at that time. And I'm like, really? Did that? Did we do that? Or, yeah. And I I, I forget because I think that, yeah, your mind's just racing in so many different directions. I think it's that mum mode that we go into almost as well. It's like you, uh, your, your, your body and your mind became the vehicle to keep your baby alive and yes. that was all that was important and you almost become I don't know that that one-eyed focus of that you need to just get there and get that done for the sake of your baby's health that, that everything else just comes second absolutely yeah. yeah there's that primal need for protection mm. and it's funny because I think about what would have happened if I hadn't been diagnosed and was just pregnant and I actually think that from a health perspective, having the cancer was a blessing because all of a sudden I'd been thrown into this little bubble of love where everyone was just making sure that I was okay. So I didn't have to worry about all of the other kind of bullshit that we normally have to worry about in our day-to-day lives. So I could focus on feeding my body, going for long walks, nourishing you know, my body, and connecting with my baby, which I think that if I if I hadn't gotten sick, I would be running around from work, stressing myself out, not concentrating on my diet and health. And I have spoken about this before, but one of the really interesting things that happened to me, and I realized this kind of midway through my pregnancy, was that the chronic anxiety that I had been battling for 10 years had disappeared because... It's like your body had no time for it. Yeah, and in a way, all of the bullshit that we have to deal with every day was no longer important. I was no longer thinking about the future because I didn't know what the future would bring. So it was literally, what am I doing today? How can I, you know, appreciate the day and, you know, give my body what it needs today that I wasn't worrying about all of the things that I needed to do and all of the dramas that I think that we get so focused on, Mm. you know, just in in day-to-day life. So it was incredibly amazing that I I automatically without realizing it had started practicing mindfulness Wow! and you know I'd heard mindfulness thrown around in so many different ways before and I kind of 
dismissed it a little bit. I think that's a real cynical media journalism thing. Like, oh, please. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, I'm going to like concentrate on what I'm eating. What do you mean? I don't have time. I'm literally eating my food as I'm writing. Yeah, there's no lunch break. What lunch break? That's right. <laughs> but it's amazing how when your mind is not focused on the past or the future, you just become this sense of calm. And I did feel like I'd been the calmest that I'd ever been in my life when I was pregnant. I'd go for walks, I'd meditate, and I would just, I'd look around. My, You know what I mean? Like my head wasn't down. I wasn't looking at nothing, just trying to focus on what was in my head. My head was outside. You know, I was looking outside. I was looking at the trees and noticing how I was feeling. And it was just incredible. It was an incredible experience. And it's something that I've tried my hardest in the years that followed to, I guess, maintain that mindfulness practice, even though it is so much harder now. It's like something that I really physically have to work at every day because, you know, the bullshit of life comes back. Creeps back. Yep. Yeah. And your beautiful son, Tor, was born in December, is that right? Yes. He's now three years old. What do you remember from that day that you had him? Oh, my God. It was like getting to the end. I'm sure a lot of women can kind of feel this, but it was like getting to the end of a marathon and falling on the ground and going, oh, my gosh, we've we've made it. You know, not only from a physical point of view because, God, childbirth is tough, (laughs) but from an emotional and a spiritual point of view, being able to see him was just the most profound thing that I'd ever experienced and yeah I'll never forget it it was just incredible and you know I get really emotional just thinking about it because you know yeah it had been it had been a really full-on few months and there were so many moments that I thought that I would never get to experience that so when I did it was just the most amazing thing and the relief it was just such a feeling of relief going you know I made the right choice and now I look back with so much I guess well not regret but I think how could you have ever contemplated making the other choice and I think that if I'd already had a child when this had happened to me maybe I wouldn't have made that that choice because I already had to live for, you know, another child. But, yeah, I, I think about that every day and I, I do. I feel, I feel guilty about having contemplated it, but I'm just so glad that the choice that I made was, for me, the right one. But that's not to say that it's not right for, ev- that it's right for everybody. I think the guilt you'd be experiencing as well is so normal and natural. I think anyone would, you know, I don't think anyone that's getting told by a specialist this is the, your pretty much only option would, of course, take that on board and consider that. Like, I don't think you're alone in, you know, weighing that up early on. So I don't think there's any point letting that weigh you down because, you know, I had goosebumps when you were saying that then because it was just the, there's such an incredible example of just divine timing and order and everything happening exactly how it was supposed to happen yeah, as well. Oh, it really does make you believe in a higher power. Yeah, has that changed? Did you believe in any kind of spirituality before this? I think I've always been spiritual. I haven't been religious, but I do feel 
a lot more certain now that there are things that we just can't, I guess, sense that are happening around us. And, I, yeah, I, I definitely do believe in, in a higher power and, and the power of the universe and, you know, energy and the importance of energy over matter. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I mean, I have become a real devotee of meditation wow. and, yeah, and spiritual practice. Do you meditate? How many times did you do it? Once in the morning or? Never in the morning because <laughs> that is almost impossible with a toddler because literally the most, I've tried it a couple of times. Yeah. Yes, I try and do it too. And I've put up a few videos on Instagram and Ollie has rammed a truck into my head. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, you know mm. what it's like. So yes, no, mornings are generally out for me. <laughs> so in the mornings I'll, I'll try and do some exercise instead. And then I will generally just before bed go into the room and just do like a good half hour. Yeah. That's or another little one, if I'm feeling a little bit frantic, bit frazzled, the car yeah. is my favorite meditation place for a good five minute meditation because it's quiet, it's cozy, like you can just literally sit there and close your eyes and just do your thing. It's kind of warm as well, like as long as it's not summer. But you know, in the winter and stuff, it's kind of a bit cozy as well. Like you said, yes, it's so true. The only thing is sometimes, like I've opened my eyes after sitting there for ten minutes and noticed like gardeners across the road, like looking at me, going, "What are you doing?" You know what I mean? You know when you do the head nod, like those kind of yeah. So look, as long as you're willing to to deal with the weird looks, you're good. And you found that's really helped keep you center, centered and grounded and mindful? Yes, absolutely. And another thing that I do love to do, it's not something that you can do every day. I mean, I wish, like if money was no issue, but floating. Oh, yeah. I've got a voucher to do that and haven't used it. They're amazing. Okay. So sensory deprivation, one hour, feeling like you're just alone in the universe is wow. amazing. Although, just a little heads up, don't rub your eye when you're in there because you will spend the whole hour going, fuck my eyes stinging so badly. I find that the, by the third float that you do, that's when you really start to go deep. Okay. So, so if the, the first, first one, you stuffed one of them up. Yes, <laughs> you'll stuff the first one up badly. You won't be able to, you'll worry that you're gonna drown. The second one you'll start, you, you might get like a good 15 minutes of going, wow, that was amazing. By the third one, you'll be like, this is a game changer. I was going to ask you some of your self-care kind of tips that have been helpful for you. So meditation is obviously mm-hmm. be one, one of them. Not rubbing your eyes in flotation tanks is another. Is there any other things that you find really helpful that have been helpful for you that you would suggest for other people that are going through a rough time? Mm. Look, yoga is really good. Seeing a psychologist, that was something that I didn't do when yeah. I was pregnant. And I kind of, I think in my mind, I was like, no, I've got this. I'm all good. I can, I can deal with this. And then it wasn't until I had Tor and combined with the sleep deprivation, starting a new drug and also like trying to manage a newborn, I just fell apart. And when I started to see a psychologist, I realized that I probably should have done that a year before. And, you know, so definitely that. Also just walking, not always with earphones, but just walking and whether or not, yeah, you wanted to play nice, like just a really calm music or something. But I think that we can just be so, I don't know, for me, I guess I'm a bit of a type A, high-functioning person person, and, and feel like if I'm not doing something that's productive, I'm not doing... Wasting time. I'm wasting time. Mm-hmm. That's right. So getting out of that mentality, 
is really important and just going, I'm going to walk from A to B and just not think about anything and just appreciate, you know, being mindful. But, yeah, it's really funny. I feel like the culture that we're in today is so focused on, you know, always levelling up. It's all about getting to that point. But we're so busy these days and you kind of wonder, like when you start to keep asking why, why do we do this but why do you do that, you kind of get to the point where you go, well, I'm doing it so that I can have a happy life and get to do things that I love. And so you think, well, we don't always have to be kind of busy. To achieve that. We've got everything that we we actually need to survive. You know, why don't we just sometimes be a little bit more grateful with what we've got and content with what we have and just take time to really just do things that we love. Is that one of the things, and that's another question I have for you, that you learned throughout all of this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I used to be really ambitious. It was all about, you know, making money and getting, you know, recognition in my industry and things like that. And now I'm like, you know what? I just want to have a really happy life. You know, I just want my, my days to be full of love. I want to be in flow all the time. You know, those moments where you just you're doing whether it's work or whether it's you know a leisure activity but when you just go oh my god how did two hours just pass it's just that blissful time and that's one of the things that I really am trying to do more is just to to get into those moments of flow Mm -hmm. and yeah and just you know appreciate the little things in life Mm -hmm. and stop and smell the roses Mm -hmm. or pat the cats that's my thing like if you're walking down a street stop pat that cat or you know let you let your son kind of play in the leaves or you know do something like that don't always be rushing to to one place or another because it's generally that walk that really is the most fulfilling part of your day right and especially for our children as well we think I think I get caught up in I've got to take Ollie to do this really fun kids activity somewhere and when we get there he doesn't even like it and you preferred like yesterday the ferry ride across to Luna Park (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, sometimes it can literally just be marching around a table making stupid noises rather than, you know, buying them a, a nice shiny new toy. Generally, that's what they like the most is just, you know, using their imagination and being with their, you know, you. friends and family. Yeah. And how did it change every, how did this experience change the way you see yourself and your values and your priorities? Yeah. Look, I definitely felt like in my 20s I was living a life that I thought others would think was great. It wasn't about what I wanted. It was just about oh, well, what will make me look like I've got my shit together and what will make me, you know, look like I've got a really exciting life. And then I realised that why, why should I live my life just trying to make other people think some way about me when I don't value myself and I, I don't, I feel like I'm a fraud. You know, I wasn't living a life aligned with my values, which was, you know, living slowly, spending time with family and friends and, you know, being creative. I wasn't doing any of that. Like it was just about work. And so I flipped that on its head and and now they're kind of my priorities. And I think that when you really do live a life aligned with your values and, you know, when you're true to yourself in all aspects of your life, things just start to come together and it just works out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like you will find opportunities that align with your values a lot easier than when you're trying to chase things that 
aren't aligned with your values. It's like the universe is like, ah, 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 you're not going to get that job because that is not who you are. It's safe to say then the then the L that was working as a fashion editor at the Daily Telly and running to shifts at Nova and then recording at Channel 9 is an entirely different person to the one that is sitting before me right now. Entirely different. And I, I do, I, I look back and I feel a little bit sorry for for her because, you know, she was so fraught with anxiety and stress and those are the years that we should be enjoying ourselves the most. So, yeah, but I also I don't regret having done that because you kind of, yeah, you have to go through those challenges and you have to go through those things to know what you don't want. So many people get so caught up and I'm not sure if you ever got caught up in this in when life does throw you these lemons in this why me victim mentality, which is so understandable and natural. What if there is anyone listening right now that it is caught in that and thinking why is X, Y, and Z happening to me, this isn't fair. What's one way you can suggest to flip that mindset to turning it into you know, a silver lining or your lemonade or, or using it to make you a better person? Yeah, I think adversity is something that as a society we're so freaked out by. We're like, oh, my God, we just want everything to be. And I, I think as a mum, you can probably understand this too, you want to wrap your children in cotton wool. You don't want anything bad to ever happen to them. But the problem is life's full of disappointments, life's full of hardships. And if you're not prepared for them, if we don't go through adversity, then the next time that something happens, whether it be worse or you know or not as bad, we're not going to be prepared to deal with them. And that's almost worse. And so I realise that hardship shouldn't be seen as something that we should be afraid of and something that we should avoid at all costs because ultimately once you get over that you realize how strong you are you realize that if you can deal with that then you can deal with so much more and it builds your character like it really does you know all of that crap about the army and stuff you know building character it's true like if you're i guess going through a whole heap of shit You've got two choices. You can play the victim or you can go, you know what, when I get out of this, when I get past this, I'm going to have learned some lessons. I'm going to learn who I am and I'm going to learn how strong that I really am. Like we are so resilient, us human beings, but we never realise it until we're challenged, until we have to show how strong we are. And if you can get over it, then you can do anything. So my, I guess my message would be at the time when you're going through something really bad, it can feel like you're not going to handle it, but you will. And then once you get out of that, that moment, once you tackle that adversity head on, you will be so much stronger for it and you will know who you are. So don't be afraid. That's incredible advice. Thank you. I had chills so many times when you were speaking and that's so, so beautiful and so true and I, I hope a lot of people listening to that will get a lot out of that because you nailed that. You do a lot of public speaking, which is evident in what you were just saying then. It's so obvious that's what you're born to do where you share your experience and then you also align with a lot of brands that you feel really connected to and that's what you were talking about before about opportunities flow your way when you're in flow and you also talk a lot about finding your lemonade as you're saying there and not letting it break you in what ways do you use what's happened to you to try and inspire people to live a better life 
for me, I feel like if I can be an example and set an example of how you can overcome difficult times in your life, how to make difficult choices and also how to realign yourself to your own values and appreciate every single moment that you have on earth, then I'll feel like I'm giving back. I think another example of your lemonade as well is the incredible book you've written, A Mother's Choice, which you haven't mentioned. (laughs) You should have seen the look on Elle's face and it was just like, oh, yeah, that's right. I wrote a book (laughs) available at all good bookstores, including Booktopia. No, but, yeah, look, writing that book was amazing because it was really cathartic. I mean, I wrote it when Tor was 10 months old and I wrote it in about two months so it was really very quick. You don't um, stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, let's just say I took a little break after that to rest and recover. But it did, it really poured out of me. And I think it was really crucial to my recovery, like emotional and, and mental recovery to write the book. And yeah, it was it was really great to do. And it's definitely sparked a passion for, for writing. And you never know, there might be another book on the horizon. We will see. But yeah. So those English teachers were wrong. You can write long form. That's true. Although I did have a lot of content in that one. True. Yes. So that's true. Yeah. To all of my English teachers that gave me 70 bloody percent of my essays. Screw there, you. Yeah. So there. There you go. And what does life look like for you now? I didn't, I meant to ask you before, but if you could answer this as well. How soon after Tor was born did you begin taking treatment and is that what you're still on now and what does it look like now? Sorry, laying that all on you. (laughs) Absolutely. So when I had Tor, I I was induced a month early because my levels had gone up, my, my cancer levels, and so they were a bit concerned. So I was induced and after that I had another test and the levels had dropped, like they'd plummeted. And I was supposed to start my medication within days of, of having Tor. And I called up my hematologist and begged and pleaded if I could possibly delay starting the medita- medication so that I could breastfeed. Mm-hmm. And he reluctantly agreed to another month. So I had just over a month to breastfeed. And I was like, I would have rivaled like dairy farmers oh. in the amount of milk that I was expressing. I oh, was- that breaks my heart. Yeah, I made it like my mission to fill my freezer up with with breast milk oh, and so incredible. I did well. It was a real effort and actually a, a family friend of ours had just had a baby as well and she was kind enough to donate her breast milk to me as well, which was amazing. That was just such a, a selfless amazing. gift. And so, so she'd come with her little eskies every couple of weeks and just drop it, drop it off for me, oh, which is wow. amazing. Yeah, it was incredible. So I breastfed for a month and then got, I reckon, another month and a half of, yeah, of express milk. So then I started the treatment and it was, it was pretty brutal. Like the side effects were not pleasant, but it got my cancer under control and it's definitely not a cure. So I, I'm actually having my next test tomorrow, oh, fingers yeah. crossed. Okay. I've gotten to undetectable once. That's the goal, to be undetectable consistently for two years. And then if that happens, then I can maybe try going off the drugs. But at the moment, I'm still taking it twice a day. And fortunately, a lot of the symptoms have subsided, but I still get chemo brain, like brain fog, which is hard. 
like sometimes I forget the cat's name. I'm like, you, the very thing that's like scratching the wall, stop it. I don't mean to laugh. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Like it's, it's bad. So that and the fatigue and a little bit of bone pain. But otherwise, like, like life's great. You know, I, I'm, so, I'm so happy every day. Just, you know, every day above ground is a, an amazing day for me. You had a test earlier in the year that, as you said, that said undetectable. And then a few, six months later, it said detectable again. How did that feel getting that news? Oh, it was such a setback yeah. because it's so long in between my, my tests. Generally, it's three months, but this one was about five months due to like a few issues with, with appointments. But yeah, and it just, I know it sucks because you just go, I want another test in two weeks just to see if I can get to undetectable. But now I, can, I kind of feel like I'm in a bit of a place where this is my life. Like it's such a, a normal part of my life now just to take my medication. And a kind of point that I reached maybe a couple of months ago was that I think I've really come to terms with the fact that Tor will probably be our only child and I'm so fine with that because I'm just so blessed to have him in our lives and, you know, he's got so many cousins and, you know, Mm. young kids in his life who I think that will make him not feel like an only child and, yeah, so I'm just so happy with one. So, look, if I'm on medication for the rest of my life, then so be it. You know, that's that's amazing for me because – that you know the alternative is a, is a lot worse and you're also studying as well yes I'm studying naturopathy so I'm two years in I've got one more year to go and that's been so fascinating learning you know that's right about health wellness food from you know nutrition is one of the big subjects and herbal medicine as well which is really great so that's been really eye-opening and that's kind of a path that I've been heading towards for some time I'm a certified health coach as well so, yeah, moving into health and wellness is definitely a big part of, you know, where I'm headed. And, yeah, it's it's a really exciting future. I'm really excited about it, actually. I love to finish with this question with all my guests. What would the L now, sitting in front of me with a whole new career and so much excitement for the future, tell the L in her darkest moments? And I'm sure there's one that we've always got one or two that really stand out as the real rock bottom. What would this L tell that one? it'll all be okay. It will all be fine. And that's it really because, you know, when you're in that zone, I think that when someone tells you anything more, you're not really thinking you're a bit unreasonable. But I think that if you can just drum that into someone that it will all be okay, this will pass, that's all you need to hear because it just plants that little seed of hope. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. No, you did such a beautiful job. I'm so excited for people to listen to this thank you so much again and thank you for bearing with the technical issues (laughs) we'll chat soon thank you lovely thank you for listening to this episode of lemonade with the brilliant al hallowell if you'd like to connect with her on instagram you can do so at al hallowell you can find me at elizabeth anil and if you're enjoying lemonade i'd really appreciate if you could click five stars and hit subscribe that way you won't miss an episode And if you feel so inclined, a kind review would be brilliant. It'll help other people find Lemonade who perhaps really need it. Also, if you've enjoyed this particular episode, why not share it on your social media? I'd be stoked if you did. I'll be in your earphones with the next installment of the Midweek Squeeze on Thursday. Bye for now.
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.